Amen. 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 Good morning, everybody. I hope you're doing well. And you can grab your Bibles and flip to Second Peter. It's good to be reminded that, uh, that we have family across the world who are suffering this very day. Uh, that quite literally will be thousands if statistics hold true today, which there's no reason to think they won't. Thousands will die today because they believe in Jesus. And millions more are under the heavy hand of persecution simply because they trust in Christ. So it's a joy to be with you. I know it's a heavy thing to contemplate, but it's good for us to consider that, isn't it? Because we, uh, we have been blessed beyond measure in ways that we just simply take for granted each day we come in here and just each day we wake up in this country. So thanks for being here. Uh, my name is Matt Moorhead. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we're going to take some time to enjoy the Lord's Supper today, and so I'm going to try to move a little bit faster through my notes. We'll see if I have success with that. We're going to be in Second Peter chapter 2. Uh, so far in our study through this book, if you've been with us the last few weeks, um, we started in this just real joyful, kind of brilliant note of how we have salvation, we have a righteousness given to us through faith in Jesus, and and we looked at what it looks like to not only know God, the knowledge of God, but yet grow in grace as those who prove through our effort, through our work in our life, that, that the grace of God is alive within us. So we talked about how we don't, we don't work for the grace of God, but we work by the grace of God. You remember that? And then also we looked at last week, just the way in which the Word of God plays the central role in the life of the believer to make us more like Jesus. And so the this simple summation of the end of chapter one that I gave you last week was, was remember the word of God and follow the word of God. And so it's going to be what it's going to feel a little bit like an abrupt transition because chapter two arguably is one of the, maybe one of the darkest New Testament chapters you might find because it's just riddled with judgment and destruction, uh, pr- particularly of false teachers. And so what we're going to do is we're going to do a little bit of a flyover today and I'm going to go back and revisit it. In a couple weeks, Pastor Chris is going to be preaching on adoption next week for Orphan Sunday. Um, but if you read this chapter, if you have read it, you probably found yourself a little bit like, whew, like that's, that's tough. This is a tough chapter to preach, I don't mind telling you. A couple weeks ago, when I laid out the challenge of like, consider not whether or not you're a Christian, because it's present in the first chapter, that's a difficult sermon to preach. Um, there's some words that you can <clears throat> you can preach that might be a little bit more enticing for people to believe. This isn't one of those chapters. It's just not all that enjoyable to read in the sense that it's pretty heavy uh, in the way that it depicts judgment. But here's what I want to do through this chapter before we read um, several verses in chapter 2, is what this section allows us to do is anticipate false teachers and false teaching, recognize what they look like, the way in which they're packaged, as it were, and then to contend against them or contend for the faith. Those are three kind of action words. As you read, just kind of keep those in mind. And so what I don't want this to be is almost like a, a documentary of false teachers. Because we could read this and just be like, okay, that's helpful. I kind of recognize these are what false teachers look like, what they may sound like, and that's helpful. But here's another way I want you to hear these words. Is there, there is a residue that comes with false teaching. And I would submit to you, there's a, there's a lot of residue in the Christian culture that comes from false teaching. So you may not be a false teacher, and by God's grace, you're not under false teaching so far as I know, but you likely have, because of the pace of information in our culture, you likely have bumped into several forms of false teaching that come with a certain amount of residue on them. 
And so my prayer is that this would also help each one of us to identify maybe the ways in which we have subtly maybe given into patterns of thought and even false teaching and help us to identify those and put them away and pursue truth. Sound fair? All right, that's our goal. Second Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 1. This is God's word for us. It says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, And if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the world, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. And they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime, their blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions. While they feast with you, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness." These, these false teachers, are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved." For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit 
And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. I take a drink after that one. But it's good for us to read God's Word in public, right? Give yourself to the public reading of Scripture. This is a long section. There's a lot that's said here. But it's difficult because if we pause at any given moment in that whole section, um, you kind of disconnect from the whole theme. And you can kind of feel it even just reading it once. Like this is a very heavy section. But the first thing I want us to do, and the first thing that Peter does, that's the reason I want to do it, is we have to anticipate that false teaching is going to be present in the church. And so as you go back to the very beginning, it says, but false prophets also arose among the people, speaking of Old Testament. So when you think about anticipation, so we think about anticipating something. I'll use a basketball analogy, and I'm sorry for those of you who don't like sports. But if you anticipate, if I anticipate a pass, if I'm out here in the passing lane, if I move toward it before it's thrown, what's going to happen is I'm either going to steal the pass or I'm going to be in a better position to defend my, the person I'm guarding, right? So in this case, if we anticipate false teaching, it's going to allow us to stop it before it starts, or it's going to put us in a better place to defend ourselves, our own hearts, from being misled when it, it in fact, comes. So Peter says false teaching existed. False teachers were there in the Old Testament among the people of God. False prophets were a problem among the people. You see it in Jeremiah 14, verse 13. It says, Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold the prophets say to them, You shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine. But I will give you assured peace in this place. That's the message of the prophets. Notably, that's a message of prosperity and health. And the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They're prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. Therefore, thus says the Lord, concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name, although I did not send them, and who say, sword and famine shall not come upon this land, it's by sword and famine those prophets shall be consumed. God takes this really seriously. False prophecies all over the Old Testament. They were there, and so Peter says, and they will be among you, church, the gathered people of God. There will be false teachers who also come into your midst among you. First Timothy 4, 1 and 2 says, now the Spirit expressly says that in a later time, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are Seer. Paul spoke about this. He spoke about it often. He spoke about it in the book of Romans, the presence of false teachers and the risk they pose to the flock. He said this, as I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the heart's of the naive. And we'll come back to a couple parts of that in a moment. One last example. Paul's departure. He has a tearful goodbye in Acts chapter 20 from the Ephesian leaders, these leaders of the church in Ephesus. And here's what he says. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. 
The presence of false teachers is an assumed reality in the New Testament church. If you've ever read the book of Revelation, the first three chapters, the Apostle John speaks to these churches in Asia Minor, seven churches. Five of the seven, he speaks of false teaching, either in that they've given into it or they've fought against it. The other two, you could probably infer that there's false teaching. It's so significant, like every church in Asia Minor, representing probably most churches throughout history, there was the presence of false teaching and the need to fight against it. So we need to be aware. We need to anticipate its presence. And we also need to recognize. And so this first thing, to recognize false teaching, may seem a little bit like a paradox or even contradictory. But we recognize false teachers because they are disguised. Does that sound weird? So you recognize them because they're actually in secret. So we see in this text and in a couple other places, go back to Peter's words, So he says, but false prophets will also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master. False teachers won't always look like false teachers. Unfortunately, they're going to come in looking like sheep, but they're going to be wolves. And some people claiming to be part of the sheep have some sharp teeth, essentially is what that means. It's like an inside job. There's going to be false teachers that come from within the local church seeking to lead people away, and their work will often be subtle and secretive. You see this in Jude 1.4. If you want some correlation in your study, the book of Jude correlates just profoundly closely with the language in 2 Peter. But Jude says it this way. He says, for certain people have crept in unnoticed. They creep in stealthily, seeking to be unnoticed and fly under the radar. And Jesus warned that wolves will sometimes look like sheep, right? He said that in Matthew chapter 7. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. 2 Corinthians 11, arguably one of the, the clearest depictions of this. Paul says this, says, for such men, these false apostles, the ones that are defaming him and trying to take superiority in this church in Corinth, he says, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Author and preacher A.W. Pink said it this way. He says, the success of an illegitimate coiner someone who makes coins that are illegitimate, frauds, depends largely upon how closely the counterfeit resembles the genuine article. Heresy is not so much the total denial of the truth as a perversion of it. So we could say the most effective way to mislead someone is to tell them a lie that's almost the truth. And that's the way false teachers often will work and look They'll speak a a lie that has a veneer of truth. It's palatable. It rings something of the Bible, but it's actually not true, and that's what makes this so dangerous. And I wrestled this week with just how particular to get here. You know, even something as simple as, like, God will never give you more than you can handle. It's not true. It's just not helpful, and it's not biblical. It doesn't seem like a big deal until you get more than you handle, 
you can handle. And you realize like, okay, what does this tell me about God? If I have more than I can handle, then maybe God isn't who he said, and you just kind of run off and you get off the rails. If we just go around telling people, hey, God wants to bless you. Well, in some ways that's true. But in our church culture, especially in Western culture, unfortunately it's been exported to Africa, the gospel of prosperity tells people, come to Jesus and he'll give you things, nice stuff and health and prosperity. The problem is when we don't get that, what does that tell us about God? It falls flat, right? And so counterfeits often resemble the genuine article. It shouldn't surprise us that false teachers major in deception because that's what their master does. He's a father of lies. So lies would be the chosen vehicle for false teachers to contend for the hearts of God's people, but we instead contend for the faith. So Jude 1.3, Jude says it this way, the beginning of his letter. He says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write a to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. This idea of contending is to, to over-agonize, like super-agonize for the faith that God has delivered to you through the Scriptures. It's no accident that right after talking about the Word of God, Peter talks about false teaching. Like, don't trust in your experience. You do well to pay attention to the Word of God. We talked about that last week, Right? I was with Jesus when he was transformed. I saw it with my very eyes. But you know what? You do well to pay attention to this, not to human experience or some subjective impression or interpretation. It's no accident right after he's talking about false teaching. Contend earnestly. Fight for the faith. Wage war against lies. Stand firm in the truth you've been given. I don't have time to go to all these passages. In 1 Timothy 4 that we just read, all those passages I just read, 1 Timothy 4, Romans 16, Acts 20, Jude 20 and 21, all of them combat false teaching with sound doctrine. The preaching of the word of God faithfully, the clinging to the faith delivered to you through the scriptures and through the faithful preaching of God's word here in the gathering. And so for some of us, if we think that like, hey, sound doctrine just doesn't sound like sexy enough for me. I need something else. Sorry. Like it's just flatly, like this, what the, the Word of God commands preachers to do is teach sound doctrine. Immerse yourself in these things, Timothy, and preach them, teach them, share them, that the man and woman of God might be adequately, adequately equipped for every good work. But give your life to sound doctrine. That's why last week's summation is still good here. Remember the Word of God and follow the Word of God. Be strengthened in grace. Fall teachers pray on the, the unsteady in verse 14. Look there with me. Verse 14 in our text, chapter 2. It says, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice who? Unsteady souls. Go down to verse 18. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh. Who? Those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. Those who are Weak. In Romans 16, it's the naive who fall prey to false teaching. What does that mean? Strengthen yourself in the Word of God. Strengthen yourself in the truth of God so that you know even just a whiff of false teaching, you'll be aware of it. It might still have a little bit of residue, but you're going to know it's there. And you can avoid it. 
You can speak to it when it's present in the lives of those that you do life with, that you care about. Even those who gain a faulty view of Christianity because of this garbage out on the streets preached by so-called pastors and preachers. But be so acquainted with the real thing that a counterfeit has no opportunity to deceive you. So when experts are taught how to perceive a counterfeit, they don't study that which is false. They study and know with incredible nuance the real thing so that they can discern when error comes. Study, immerse yourself in, saturate your mind and heart day by day with the real thing, with sound words of wisdom from the Word of God. So, now that I'm like a third away through my notes and I don't have much time, let me just rattle off a couple things to consider. False teachers deny Jesus. False teachers deny the master who bought them. Jude says the same thing. They deny our master and Lord Jesus Christ. The destructive nature of false teachers culminates in those who follow them blaspheming or speaking against the truth. Whether it's those who follow their way or like in Romans chapter 2, for those who are hypocrites who say one thing, they're teachers of the law, but yet they, they break the same law they preach. Paul says, because of you that the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles. So we want to be those who cling tightly to Jesus. We contend, we fight, we over-agonize, and we preach Jesus. Like we preach Christ crucified. We preach Christ risen and alive. Find your hope in him. Run to him. Feast upon his word. Find your satisfaction and delight in him. Not what you can get from him. Him. And we preach Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And so many preachers in our day, particularly in this prosperity gospel, which is no gospel at all, preach that Jesus plus something gives you everything. Everybody in this room, if you add anything to Jesus, you end up with nothing. Jesus plus anything renders you nothing. Galatians, the whole book is dedicated to that. Because these early Jewish Christians thought that Christians had to be circumcised plus believe in Jesus. They had to become, before they became Christian. And it may not look like it this, this day, circumcision isn't the issue. But if there's something you add to, either to gain the favor of God, or if you come to Jesus, maybe more particularly in our moment, to get something that's greater than Jesus, you could fill in the blank this way. If you come to Jesus to get money, then Jesus isn't your God, money is. If you come to Jesus to get health, then Jesus isn't your God, health is. If you come to Jesus to get earthly blessings, Jesus isn't your God, earthly blessing is your God. You get the point. And that's what the prosperity gospel is. You come to Jesus, he's going to fill your life with good things, health, wealth, prosperity. It doesn't mean there's not blessing. Certainly there's blessing. But it's not here. Ultimately, it's there. Right? I'd labor and strive for the upward call of God in Christ. That's what Paul said in Philippians 3. We leave all this stuff behind. This Jesus plus theology leaves you with nothing. And it may amount to a point of emphasis that squeezes Jesus and the gospel out of first place. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it this way. He says, we have somehow got, a, somehow got a hold of the idea that error is only that which is outrageously wrong. 
And we do not seem to understand that the most dangerous person of all is the one who does not emphasize the right things. It may be that false teaching boils down ultimately to a point of emphasis that squeezes Jesus and the gospel to the peripheral. That something that's secondary becomes the matter of first importance. It could also take that form as well. False teachers cultivate sensuality over sanctification. This could be a whole sermon. There's so much in this text about sensuality. Let me just kind of summarize a couple of thoughts. The, the teaching of false teachers will not aim to bring about godliness or holiness. Their teaching will lure people with license. Hey, God is gracious. Live your life. But it'll lure them in with a license to live whatever life they want because the grace of God is big. That is not the gospel. That's, that's heresy. Destructive heresy. As if there's, I don't know why Peter chose to put destructive heresy. Most of it is destructive. That's another Another should. They pervert the grace of God into sensuality, Jude 1.4. Just a quick survey of these verses in this section. Verse 2, and many will follow their sensuality. Verse 10, they indulge in the lust of defiling passion. Verse 14, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. Verse 18, by speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions. And Lot is noted that the nephew of Abraham in the Old Testament was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. But it seems that what Peter's saying is that these false teachers, they're not going to be concerned about sensuality. They're going to promote it. They're not going to be concerned as in if it's a concern in the walk with God, they're going to be concerned in that they're going to promote it. And unfortunately, there's examples that even abound in our current moment of sexual abuse and abuse of power unto the end of sensuality and sexual immorality. It's an abomination in the house of God. False teachers will not be greatly distressed by sensual conduct. They'll indulge in filth. They'll speak with words reflecting the same and actually seek to entice others to join them. I think one thing here church fans say is that, you know, I left a couple weeks ago after preaching chapter one and this call like, it's called, like, be assured that if you belong to God, it's, it's by his doing. He's called, he's chosen you before the foundation of the world. You see that in Second Peter chapter 1. You see this calling and electing work of God. But any time that we preach, walk it out. Like, be a holy people. There's a heaviness that comes. You know why? Because not many people are enticed by calls to holiness. Because holiness is hard. Like godliness is hard because this world is just relentless and it offers a fraudulent satisfaction. And why do I bring that up? Because we think about this section, we think about this moment, this heavy chapter, and even some of it was heavy in looking at Matthew 7. There will be many on the day they meet God that will believe they're in him and will only find out that they never knew him. That's heavy. So why am I bringing this up now? It's because like, we need to preach and hear the warnings from the Word of God just like we need to preach and hear the promises of God. I can't skip this chapter. As much as practically this week, I was like, man, I wish I didn't have to preach this. This is really hard. There's a reason we preach verse through, by verse through books of the Bible because we can't skip over the things that are hard. We need the warnings just like we need the promises to move us to holiness. Why? Because there's joy found in walking with God. But the world needs to see that Jesus makes a difference. 
He's not just some ticket to heaven. We'll just buy our time, live in mediocre lives until then. No, he deserves our life, our surrender. If we know him, we should live like, like him and for him with joy. It's hard work. I get it. I know. But we need to put effort into godliness. You want to entice someone, minimize the reality that God's grace not only saves but changes. You want to entice someone, emphasize license over living. That's what Peter's saying. J.I. Packer said it this way. He says, it may be that he says, the false teacher, what, we, what he shouldn't. It may be that the false teacher says what he shouldn't, but it's far more likely that he will err by failing to say what he should. It may it be that we never fail to say from this pulpit or in our lives as believers, certainly as pastors and teachers, the things that we need to say. And every single word of this book is true. It's our authority for life, for faith. And so we're going to give you imperfectly what the Word of God says. And some of it is that you might know that there are false teachers out there who are going to preach differently. They're going to preach a gospel counter to that which has been delivered to us once and for all, been handed down to us. And we're going to go back and kind of survey a little bit some of the, the twists and turns of the judgment on these false teachers in a couple of weeks. But let me just close with this before we take communion together. In verse 3, it says, The condemnation of these false teachers is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Their active rebellion against the Word of God and the God of the Word is actively storing up wrath. Falsters and all those who deny Jesus and blaspheme the truth will face judgment without a mediator. My question to you, if you're in this room, is do you have Jesus as your mediator or as your judge? He will be one or the other. Trust in him today. The message of the gospel is this, that every single one of us have broken the law of God. Every single one. We've been found guilty in the sight of God fallen short of his profound eternal perfection. And as a result, we're children of wrath. But the miracle of the Christian message is that God didn't deal with us according to our sin or reward us according to our iniquity. If you put your faith and trust in Christ, the reality for you is that Jesus was treated as if he lived your sinful life so that through your faith in him, God is going to treat you as if, if you live the perfect life of Jesus Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. Not by any work that you have done. Your work is to trust by faith in Jesus alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Believe today. Trust in him today. Have him as your mediator and as your savior and increasingly as your treasure and part of contending for the faith for us as believers and as a family of faith is to remember the death of Jesus for us. And I want to invite you to bow your head just for a minute. Maybe just contemplate the ways in which you need to consider the maybe different ways that sin has taken root in your life and wrong thinking. And invite Pastor Mike up here. He's going to lead us through a time of communion. But maybe just take a minute and just kind of survey your own heart in light of what was just shared.